the story is the Adams family themselves rather than the narrative they've been put into. Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Fayfix. And I'm Charlene. And this week we're talking about the Adams family. Do we have any housekeeping to do? Oh, we have merch now. Yes, you can head over to Redbubble. We've posted our link in a few places, or you can just search on Ramblings. You can get all sorts of things. We're waiting on our own merch from there. We're getting a coffee cup and a couple of really nice looking face masks. They're going to have glasses wires in them, which will be awesome, because we don't really have any that do that yet. I know some people who have got t-shirts and things, and those who have had their stuff arrive already uh, seem pretty happy with it. We are continuing to put out videos on YouTube, so if you haven't seen those yet, you can go and check those out. We just put out a new one talking about Ursula Gwyn and gender in The Left Hand of Darkness. It's a video that's sort of, you know, personally important to me. But we'll be having a new one out every other Wednesday. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye open for those. Okay, so when we say we're doing The Addams Family, you might wonder, like, which bit are we talking about? Because there's movies, and then there's other movies, and there's a TV series, and there's a comic, and there's a TV series. and Most of it is the answer. We've watched the two early 90s movies. Mm-hmm. We did not watch Adam's Family Reunion because it was straight to video, very poorly received. We couldn't find it and we didn't want to. No one had anything nice to say about that movie. Yeah, uh, you can't make us. Uh, we watched the 2019 animated movie that came out last year, as things from 2019 are want to do. We watched several episodes of the show from the 60s, which was enough, trust me. And we went and dug out some of the original comics from the 30s. Which means we did not watch any of the cartoon from the 70s. Correct. And, you know, obviously we didn't watch all of the episodes of the 60s uh, sitcom. We'll get into why in a bit. Yeah. I mean, apart from anything else, there's like 100 of the damn things. Really? There's that many? Maybe not 100, but more than 60. Mm. I'm sure I've seen more of them than we watched recently in preparation for this episode, just because I would watch it occasionally on TV growing up and like... Uh, I think it was one that would come on to TV Land, or maybe it was just the Munsters that did that. It might have just been the Munsters that did that. But anyway, it was something that I would occasionally just watch at home growing up. I'm not sure that I've ever watched the Munsters. Really? Huh. I think it might have been something that was on around on the TV occasionally, but I don't think I could tell you much about the Munsters. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into the spoiler territory now. We'll do the summary of the work, which is going to be a little bit weird this time. So we're obviously going to be spoiling the Adams Family movies and some of the show and the stuff we just talked about. Mm-hmm. If we have any other spoiler or content warnings, we'll drop those in right here. And I think we might add a sound effect in because we don't do that normally and I know it's weird. So cue sound effect. Hello. I hope there was a sound effect. There are not really any spoiler warnings this episode. I mean, I guess maybe for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but I don't think so. Yeah, I don't really think there are any content warnings so much either. You know, there's vague references to people dying and being killed because Adam's family and like passing mention of the abusive relationship in the 90s movie. But I think that's pretty much it. Okay, and back to the past. Let's get another one of those sound effects in there. Welcome back. I've been talking for a while, so I think Charlene's going to do a summary of the work or whatever that looks like in this case. So with the Adam's family, it's not so much a summary of the work as it is a summary of sort of the idea. If you're not familiar with the Adams Family, 
I'm not really sure what rock you've been under for the past 90 some odd years because that's when the comics first came out in like the 30s. But the Adams family are a kooky and spooky family of sort of weird misfit people. There's the mother and father, uh, Morticia and Gomez. Morticia is generally depicted as like very tall and slim and very beautiful and really likes like dangerous plants and things like that and is a stay-at-home mom. And Gomez is a sort of energetic and jolly type of guy who's also very weird and likes toy trains and cigars and things like that. The family has a whole lot of money, and that is often important in depictions of them. They have two, sometimes later on, three kids. Wednesday, who is their daughter, who looks a lot like Morticia, but smaller and with her hair and pigtails. And Pugsley, who is like a very, like, chubby boy who's very mischievous and likes to blow stuff up all the time. And sometimes they have a baby named Pubert who has a little like mustache like Gomez's even though he's like an infant. Their grandmother Pubert does only appear in one movie. And their uncle Fester who also lives with the family and just seems to be like an eccentric single member of their family that lives there and can produce electricity from his body for some reason. And Grandmama, who is there and seems to be like a fairly stereotypical like witch type character who makes a whole lot of really disturbing foods for everybody. They also have a very tall Frankenstein-esque butler called Lurch, who is nonverbal or limit has limited verbal skills depending on the depiction. And there is a creature called Thing, which is just a disembodied hand that goes around and helps the Adamses do things. So I think like that's the main cast of the Adams family that just sort of recurs in all of these different mediums. And there's just, you know, hijinks uh, surrounding this family and their encounters often with like the more normative traditional population that lives around them. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it. So as we were saying, there's been a lot of different adaptations of this. And some things appear a little bit differently and there's been a lot of mutations in exactly who people are and what they mean and what stories are being told because 90 years have passed and when you're doing something that's counterculture, the culture that you're being counter to is changing so you have to change too. So we have the 1930s comics, the 1960s black and white TV series, which is one of the closest things to the comics. There's a 70s animated TV series that uses a lot of the direct imagery from the comics. I don't know much more than that, unfortunately. It was a very short run. And do you want to clarify, when we say comics, we mean like they were newspaper comics, not like booklets. So they're like often a single panel that just sort of depicted a scene like from the lives of the Addams Family. Yeah, the live movies with Angelica Houston and Morale Julia, which were much more feature things, a lot much more in the way of special effects. Or at least better special effects than the 60s. Yeah. Although, to be fair, the 60s show does not have bad special effects for the 60s. No. On a budget. Like, mm-hmm. it, you can see how they do everything. But, you know, there's the plants eating things and stuff. It's clever. They, they worked with what they had. And then we sort of circled back in 2019. Like, the animated movie goes back to a lot of the source material. But I think, and we'll get into this more later, has the biggest departure from everything that's come before it in what the story it's telling is. Okay, so the overall conceit, you hinted at it a bit, but let's get a bit into more into it, is this is a family who is opposite, question mark, from the mainstream. Right. The question that I kind of have for this 
just opening out is does this conceit work? Certainly, like, there are some things, and I mean, to take something that I think appears in every version that we saw is there's a dark, stormy thunderstorm going on outside. The Adams family are clustered around enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the comics that we looked at is literally them being like, oh, you know, that's it's a terrible storm. It, remind, it reminds you how great it is to be alive. Right. That definitely also happens in mid-season episodes of the series, in the movies, everywhere. Right. That I don't think there's a problem in. I certainly know people, myself included, who enjoy a good storm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the respects in which, like, the conceit of, like, these are people who just enjoy things that are different from what other people enjoy and find things other people find enjoyable to be not enjoyable. Like, that's one of the types of areas in which it does work. Um, But I would go back to the question of, like, does this conceit work by asking you, like, what does it mean for it to work? Like, if you're asking if it's consistent, no, because it's one of those things that the more you look at it, the more it kind of breaks down. And there's like a little bit of a like a weird opposite day thing going on where people say one thing, but they clearly mean another thing. But they're just using the opposite term for the like weird opposite day aesthetic of the Adams family. But in other ways, like with the storm stuff. It's just a matter of taste and a matter of aesthetic, and that's fine. You know, it's a cultural difference in terms of what's appreciated. And in all of those regards, I think it does work. Yeah, I think that it holds up a lot when it's things like that. I think sometimes they're playing for a laugh in a way that it breaks down. Yeah. One of the other things that you see consistently throughout them, it's something that they took from the comics and kept going throughout, is there's a line, are you unhappy, dear? And the response is, yes, perfectly so. Mm -hmm. Being unhappy can't be a good thing, or at least you can't be happy about being unhappy. That doesn't work. Yeah, You can enjoy wallowing and being in a depressive state. That doesn't really seem to be where they are. Yeah, it's not quite the same thing. And that's what I'm talking about when I say, like, there's sometimes, like, a weird opposite day thing where it's, like, it's clear that they mean happy. And they're just saying unhappy for this weird almost misunderstanding although again it's not a misunderstanding this is the original source material we're talking about so this is how it was done on purpose and that everything else is referencing to Um, but it's an odd situation where like ways in which later interpretations of something being faithful actually ends up being the thing that makes it more inconsistent in a like weird perverse way yeah i think i understand what you mean and it's it's interesting because like i mean and I don't want to imply that we don't like the Adams family because we do. Like, I do really appreciate the aesthetic and just the idea of the Adams family as a thing. I really enjoyed the 90s movies and the 2019 movie. And even, and I enjoy episodes of the 60s one. Although watching a lot of them in succession, it can kind of wear on you because they're recycling all the same jokes and things like that. But I mean, that's, I think, true of like any sitcom from that period of time. But like, I don't know. I think I kind of lost my where I was going with this. Yeah. Like, so I don't want to imply that, like, I don't like the Adams family because I do. I just think that in some ways it can break down if you look at it too hard, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's enjoyable. Uh, the question I'm asking here more is, is it logically consistent? Yeah. And I would say no, <laughs> but it's fun and people should be able to enjoy fun things. I think that there is a large element of farce. Oh, definitely. It. Yeah. Like, It's not logically consistent, and I don't think it matters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to. I mean, that's true of so many things that are literally just made to be fun and silly and enjoyable and, like, create an idea or an atmosphere. 
And I don't think that there's a reason to not enjoy things. Like I don't want to be somebody who can't enjoy something if it doesn't have a whole lot of, I don't know. I'm just going to, I think, stop one on the head. I think that you're sort of beating around an idea that we spoke about on our last pre-ramble. So if you want to know what Shannon was talking about, go and check out the pre-ramble on our Patreon. <laughs> it's a little tacky. It's a little tacky. You said in there that it can just be fun, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I think that it's not just fun. I think that there's a lot more commentary going on in here. Well, sure. I didn't mean to imply uh, that it wasn't. Okay. It's very silly. It doesn't take itself seriously, mm-hmm. but it does have more to say. Sure. Or at least it, I think in some iterations, it says more than it necessarily means to by showing itself. I'm not sure what you're saying. So by setting out to show a mirror image of what the traditional family is, it tells us more about what the writers and creators underlying thoughts about those traditional families are than they perhaps intend to. Sure. Because it is certainly holding a mirror up to them. I mean, you talk about the weird opposite days thing. They are opposites in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But there's some stuff that's more telling in how it's not opposite. Sure. Like, there's certain things that I found interesting because there's some implication that by not sort of inverting them, there's this idea of these things as sort of immutable or foundational and, like, not even something you'd consider switching around. So there's the fact that, like, the, a lot of the, like, family roles are still, in a lot of ways, very traditional. Um, you have Morticia as a stay-at-home mother in the 30s and 60s. And in the 90s one, this is sort of acknowledged because Morticia talks about wanting to have it all and wanting to have more time to pursue the dark arts and things like that. And, you know, it's kind of framed as sort of this, like, career aspiration thing. But the fact that those ideas around like women's place are still very strongly centered in what was being discussed or normative to think about in a certain way of those times kind of implies that you like you can't change that or like if you did it wouldn't be able to be a commentary on the things that it's trying to talk about if that makes sense oh that's an interesting point there's also the idea of morticia like always considering herself to be an adams and like holding a lot of pride in that, despite the fact that she's like married into this family. It's like there's no version of Morticia where she keeps her maiden name or where she feels less of an allegiance or adherence to these like deep Adams family traditions the same way that Gomez and other members of the family might do, you know? So she's like internalized them really strongly in a way that's interesting when you're thinking about trying to kind of show a family in which everything's different from the normal type of orientation. Yeah, we don't really see much of the frumps in anything other than the TV series. Yeah, the frumps being Morticia's family of origin. Yeah, even when all of the Adams clan gets together, there's not like Morticia's family standing in an awkward corner or something. Mm-hmm. Although, certainly in the animated movie from 2019, her parents are dead. Yeah, that's true. Which... Might go some way to explaining that, but... In fact, they have more presence in there, obviously, than in the 90s movies because they do appear in a crystal ball, like they meet regularly and she maintains a relationship with them from the other side, so... Yeah, and also, you know, uses them as makeup. 
very weird opening sequence. That I think did keep a lot of the darkness, really. Yeah, no, I liked it. It was just like, it was unexpected in a lot of good ways. Yeah, to diverge from what we were talking about for a minute, I, I guess we didn't really talk about our thoughts on some of the films. I hadn't really seen much of The Addams Family before this. I'd seen bits and pieces of the movie and sort of a, it was on in the TV and I was walking through the room and it was the middle 10 minutes of, and I was like, oh, that looks, that looks weird. And then I carried on. So watching all of this in the last week or two has been strange. <laughs> but very good for getting into the Halloween spirit. True. Just to talk about just the movies for a moment. I think those three movies are the most closely rated. I think they're the closest to what people think of when they think of the Addams Family now. I think with this generation, yeah. yeah. I did enjoy the first one. I, I had a couple of plot issues that we'll get to later, but largely I, I thought that was really good. The second movie, I just spent most of it cringing at the Festa romantic relationship. That just... That's fair. Yeah. There's like, a lot of social uncomfortableness in that one. Yeah. I'd definitely go back and watch the 1991 one again. I think I would skip Family Values if I was rewatching everything. I was really surprised by the 2019 one. I thought it was going to be pared down for kids and a more modern take on things that didn't necessarily need a more modern take, which in retrospect was hilarious because the 30s to the 90s is more of a modernization than the 90s to the 2019. But if you haven't seen it, I think it does a really good job of keeping all of the Adams Family lore alive while updating it in a way to remove some of the more problematic issues. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. And like, if you look at the animation style, they're very clearly trying to be super faithful to the original sketch style of the newspaper comics from the 30s and then the animated series in the 70s, you know, the ones that were drawn. Uh, and I appreciate that a lot. Like, and that is one of the things that has been really interesting to see in the Adams Family adaptations is that there is so much love for the source material and there's so much fidelity to like even very specific scenes and gags. And again, in some ways that's kind of carried a little too far in a way that ends up kind of driving some inconsistency with plot or with humor, but is also really nice to see because a lot of the time you see stuff being adapted and it's like vaguely inspired by what came before and there's clearly not been a lot of effort to preserve what was loved about the things that came before. Yeah, I mean, to just have completely derailed the conversation, I mean, there's things like Christopher Lloyd's representation of Festa, mm -hmm. where there's an expression that the original actor pulled on a regular basis when trying to show Festa's true essence. In 1963, 64 yeah. or whatever, yeah. And Christopher Lloyd just nails that. Mm -hmm. There's so many little touch points Mm -hmm. that they managed to keep through. And I mean, several of them are in the first episode, but some of them are deeper cuts. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the presence of the lion, the 2019 movie brings back Aristotle, the squid. The but actually, octopus. The octopus. But actually has it on screen because it's easy to do that on an animation budget. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the 2019 movie recreates the credits scene from the 60s at the end. Yeah, which um, is really cute. So you not only get scenes of uh, Morticia preparing her bouquet of thorns, but you get like Gomez sharpening the fence posts and things. Yeah, it's extremely faithful, like shot for shot, a recreation, it, but with the animated characters doing exactly the same stuff instead. So you can tell that everyone who gets involved in an Adam's Family project, or at least everyone who has like decision-making authority, loves that series, loves the idea of these characters. One thing that did strike me a little bit strangely about the adaptations is that 
a lot of the characters they cast to look quite a lot like the originals. I think Christina Ricci is a great casting for Wednesday and her appearance matches fairly closely the original drawings. But the one that always seems just to drift away from the originals is Gomez, Mm. who was just a stockier, more well-built individual. Mm-hmm. And Gomez, in all the live action stuff, seems to be much more of a taller, trimmer figure. Yeah, they seem to try and compensate for that with John Aston in the 60s one by having him in like these huge boxy suits all the time to kind of like artificially create that sort of square, more squat shape. It doesn't quite work though, because you can still like, you know, tell what the shape of his body is underneath all of that fabric and the shoulder pads and stuff. It's crazy. But yeah, like. With the other characters, they do go strongly, more strongly for silhouette. I have to think that with Gomez, they felt the energy was more important to capture. And I think that John Aston does a good job of capturing that sort of vitality that Gomez is supposed to have. Yeah. Yes, that's a good word, vitality. Okay, to get back vaguely on track, are we talking <laughs> about this sort of traditional norms that get eschewed? I think one of the strange ones that doesn't seem to get touched as much as you'd expect is um, the gender stuff. Wednesday is certainly more likely to kill things than the traditional schoolgirl might be expected. She's more violent in general, like even in the 60s one. She's the one who punches the neighbor kid who's a jerk, not her brother. Her brother tears the kid's jacket, but Wednesday punches him in the face. And Which is played to laugh. It is played for laughs as sort of like, oh, you know, you got, this kid got hit by a girl thing. Which is shitty, but it also is part of that you know, inversion of like, yeah. no, in this family, it's the girl who throws the punches. But there's a lot of the way that she's treated in various ways where something else seems to be expected of her that's more confined to gender. It's possible because she's the older one in a lot of the later stuff. I think in the 60s, she's the younger one. But in the 60s, she's not as much of a fleshed out character. So. Well, I think part of that might be because one of the things that she usually has with her is a doll. And so mm. there's that, which like leans more into kind of traditional expectations of like how girls play. But particularly in the 90s one, I, I think that having her like main form of play not involve the doll, like it's more of an accessory for her. It's part of her aesthetic. But what she does for fun is torment her brother or play violent games with him because he doesn't actually seem to mind any of it. So it's not so much tormenting him as like pretending to torment him, but... I think attempt to murder him is yeah. what you're dancing around there. He might not seem to mind it, but that's what she's doing. It's not violent games. Like, there's a scene where he she just electrocutes him. Uh. Yeah, but again, he's fine. Like, it's Which weird. is never explained. Right, and that's one of the things that's like... I think that's one of the things that like breaks down the most about the Adams Family, if you look at it too closely, is just how lucky they are. Because, like, it's unclear if these are supernatural beings, but... To a certain extent, they kind of have to be. I mean, I know Morticia is often implied to be a witch and descended from witches. That's often actually stated. And Fester is canonically like an electrical creature, like way more than anyone. Well, he got um, struck by lightning. Yeah, he got struck by lightning. But also, in general, the Adamses just seem to be able to survive a lot of things that should kill other people. And so it's interesting the extent to which if it's known that people in the family like survive all these kinds of things then it is playing even if you're like you're doing things that would kill other people but you know that they'll be fine (laughs) i think the problem i have with it is in the end of adam's family values the threat to the family is being electrocuted 
which would do presumably nothing to Fester, and we know from earlier in the movie, nothing to Pugsley. Yeah. We know, in fact, it wouldn't do anything to Fester because that's yeah. the, the first way she tries to kill him is electrocuting him. So also it's kind of dumb on her part talking about Debbie in the Adam's Family Values movie. You know, I think I might know what it is. They were drawn in the 1930s, so I think that they are just tunes. Oh, yeah. Like in Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. I haven't seen that movie in forever, but that would make sense. Like they don't abide by the same rules as other people. They abide by cartoon logic. Yeah, it's why the Raul Julia Gomez does all the backflips and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that works. Sure. And it's one of those things where, like, yeah, you can stare at it closely and be confused. Like, are they supernatural creatures or not? Are they just crazily lucky? Like, what's going on? Or you can just be like, uh, you know, that's one of those things where, like, no, it's just supposed to be fun. This is just part of the conceit. Not only are they weird, they're also, like, weirdly invulnerable and just go with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Thing is fairly definitely supernatural. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then... In the 2019 one, there is communing with spirits through a crystal ball, as you mentioned. And in the 60s one, um, Morticia smokes, but Morticia doesn't smoke a cigar. Like, she produces smoke from her body, like, for fun sometimes. Huh. And it's played for, like, a pun. And that's one of those things where, like, there are a lot of things where the humor is coming from wordplay being taken literally rather than this sort of opposite day wordplay stuff. Yeah. Okay. So we want to talk a little bit about a couple of the relationships that you see in there. Uh, You said that you wanted to speak particularly about Morticia and Gomez. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that really draws people to the Adams family is the relationship between Morticia and Gomez. Like, it's such a beautiful and passionate romance, like in every iteration that you see of the Adams family. And I think it's one of the things where, like, it's nice to see, particularly in a sort of sitcom format, Characters who are well-rounded and where the different dimensions of their lives are displayed rather than having them be pared down to, like, one aspect of their lives. So you'll see in a lot of sitcom things, like, you know, you see the mom character only as a mom and, like, the dad character, like, only as a dad. And you never see them, like, indulging in their hobbies or the way that they are in relationship to each other. Like, what are they like as a couple? You're only seeing how they are as parents. Or fulfilling other, like, very stereotyped ideas of a parent. And so I think that's one of the things that's really refreshing about the Adams family. Like, Gomez and Morticia have hobbies that they love and enjoy and do by themselves or together or sometimes with other people who share the same enthusiasms. They have a passionate romance that continues to be passionate 10, 20 years into their marriage kind of varies based on which iteration you're watching as to like how long they've been married, but like well into the lives of their kids. And you also see the same thing with other members of the family where like grandmama has her things. She's always working on potions and things like that. Like she's not just there to be grandmotherly to the kids, you know. So I, I appreciate that as this idea of like people stay whole individuals even when they are fulfilling a specific role. Yeah. There is an extent to which in a couple of the adaptations, Gomez and Morticia can almost come across as kind of bad parents, where like they are so involved in their own stuff that their kids almost become an afterthought. I don't know. I think that's an argument about like a parenting style, because I know a lot of people whose parents are more hands-off, and they want to give their kids the freedom to do their own thing and make mistakes and not have like too close of supervision. 
Um, you know, and that is a totally valid parenting perspective. And I think that that's something that you see with the Adams family. They do step in and they do impose structure in a lot of ways, but they don't let that be like the only thing that they're paying attention to in their lives. Yeah. Actually, that is a thing that you see a little bit differently in 2019 version is they do impose a lot more rules on their kids. Yeah. Um, The Pugsley story is about getting him ready for his... Mazurka. Mazurka. And insisting on that. And eventually the lesson is you can't force that. Your kid has their strengths and you need to let them have the strengths. And it's Gomez being overbearing in that way. Well, I think part of that too, it's not even just you can't force it so much as if a tradition is going to survive, it needs to be able to adapt to the times. And that's very true in this situation. Like you can't expect a kid in the 21st century to develop and be interested in developing like the skills that were prized the hundreds of years ago when the mazurka tradition was developed yeah similarly though you see them be strict about wednesday not leaving yeah and who she socializes with when they're concerned about the influences of the outside world yeah and i appreciate that they set that up at the beginning with like the traumatic inciting incident to them having that sort of insular perspective where they had tried to live more integrated in a traditional community in the past and were literally hunted down by a pitchfork-waving mob, you know. I feel like that helps to sort of ground their overbearing sort of uh, restrictive parenting of that in something that makes sense and doesn't seem like they're just being jerks who are judgmental of outside society for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, talking about them being insular and isolationist it's interesting because they i think in all of the variations come across kind of naive like they're so shut off from the outside world that they don't when they do come to interact with it they get taken for fools yeah or like they jump to conclusions that are wrong like a lot and that plays into the sort of you know slapstick and farcical humor that you were talking about but it does kind of give this impression of them as sort of head in the clouds, naive people, but also just very out of touch, which I think also ties into the fact that they're very wealthy and like they are very removed from like the quote unquote common people in like a lot of ways, not just these aesthetic and tune logic ways, but also in terms of like financial and economic perspectives kind of ways. Yeah. They always seem surprised when someone else doesn't have the same idea of fun as they do. Mm -hmm. There's an episode of the 60s, show that we watched which is a halloween episode Mm -hmm. where two people who have robbed a bank turn up and end up hiding out in their household and the adams think that their bag full of money is their trick-or-treat bag and try to put candy in it and then see it's full of money and apologize because they realize the rest of the neighborhood must have been handing out money and open up their drawer full of money in front of these people and put some handfuls in for them their neighbors weren't handing out hundreds of dollars they should know that yeah, but they clearly have like never talked to their neighbors or sent their kids trick or treating before, or like if they, but they clearly had though because they do send their kids trick or treating in that episode, and presumably they've done that before. They must so. have been pretty pissed off when their kids came back with just some damn candy and not piles of money. Yeah, so yeah, it does come off as as pretty naive. Similarly, what you were talking about with them not understanding other people's idea of fun is not the same as their idea of fun, like when the robbers are shocked at the idea of like bobbing for crabs rather than bobbing for apples. 
they're perplexed. And then also when the robbers suggest hide and seek instead, they're like, what? Yeah. Which is, again, inconsistent because there's a, another episode in which you find out that Gomez and Morticia's sister played hide and seek during the period of time when they were engaged. Anyways, the whole thing. Point being, there's a flashback that indicates they do know what hide and seek is. I mean, it's possible that Gomez just was massively traumatized by that whole thing. <laughs> that was one of the things I want to talk about with the gender stuff is looking at that episode from the 60s where Morticia and Gomez have the flashback of how they got together. Morticia's sister is being sold to Gomez's family. There's a dowry involved in everything. Yeah, I think that's one of those things that's consistent with things you see in even like the 2019 one where there are these like really stolid family traditions in the Adams family and in the families that they consort with, traditions that clearly have not been altered in hundreds of years, like the Mazurka or Mamushka in the 1990s movies. You know, there are these traditional gatherings and dances and rituals that they and the families that they sort of have this other culture with, like alongside the mainstream culture. And so, like that holding to a dowry system and, you know, arranging the marriage of your kids to happen the same day you've agreed that it's going to happen is another one of those, like, entrenched family traditions that you're seeing as a hallmark of the Adams family. Yeah, I guess it's the complexity of trying to write something that's counterculture, but also steeped in tradition, Mm -hmm. and then finding that the mainstream culture is becoming more and more progressive. Yeah, and I do think that a lot of these really traditional practices that you're seeing the Adams family maintain is meant as a commentary against the mainstream culture leaving a lot of traditional practices and beliefs behind. And also, in some ways, might be a commentary on like the way that holding on to traditions like that is more common for really wealthy eccentric people. Because you see like things like debutante balls and, you know, that's the one that really comes to mind right now. But you know what I mean? Like, um, what's the um the one where you like present your teenage daughter when she comes of age or is that debutante that, that's a debutante ball, okay. yeah um, i'm clearly not wealthy enough to know these things yeah um trust me i'm not yeah but like things like debutante balls you know that are still in yeah. practice in mostly upper class societies and families who have like old money yeah i think because like there has been so much progression in social values like i think it's interesting to see how that isolationist view is taken and changes throughout because i mean it's an american series and the comics were originally american right i believe so and like in the 60s you have this counterculture family who is very isolation isolationist and insular and you're looking at a world that is becoming more and more global and an america that's becoming more and more global Mm mm-hmm so it kind of makes sense that the counter to that is this group of people who don't deal with the outside world kind of at all. They deal with their own situation. They clearly don't seem to keep their money in banks. They they have a convenient drawer, maybe many drawers. I'm not sure. And I think that that sort of continues to an extent through to the 90s films. Yeah. I may need you to help me with American history in places here. So tell me if I'm wrong. Where in the 90s films, like, the connection to the outside world is still very limited and interactions with it don't go well. It's, you know, people are coming in to try and take our money. When you marry someone, all they want is your money and to try and kill you. It's kind of alarmist about everyday normal culture. Normal in quotes for culture there. And it's threatening. Yeah. Yeah. With the 2019 one, 
you know, 2019 in the age of Trump and building walls, you've got a family that is isolationist and has become isolationist because of external threats. And it's about them deciding to reintegrate with the world to a degree. And it critiques the culture that's in the outside in its process. The outside world is bent on conformity, or at least home improvement stars are bent on conformity. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's sort of a meeting in the middle of not being isolationist, but also being yourself and allowing for differences and non-conformity. Yeah. I think it's just an interesting trajectory to have seen it go in. It kind of reminds me of that theory of the um, vampires and zombies, is it? The Republican versus Democrat? Yeah. And I think an interesting dimension of that is that a lot of the time the children are the reason that the Adams family can't stay isolated from everyone else. Uh, in the opening of the 1960s movie, like they have to interact with the outside world because the truant officer comes and is like, your kids need to be in school. It's the law. This has to happen. And that ends up being sort of the bridge through which they end up interacting with more people outside of their clan and their affiliated clans who share the same cultural beliefs and practices. And that's the same thing that you see in the 2019 movie where it's the kids, Wednesday in particular, who are curious about the outside world and who want to know what's happening out there and are open to having those experiences, which sort of brings the family out and brings the outside world in. Yeah. I think the big difference is that I think in the 60s, it's never shown to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's sort of an incident that happens and it causes some hijinks. Yeah. And then the people go away again. That's the important mm-hmm. part. And they go back to whatever their lives happen to be. The burglars leave the Adams house and get arrested like 100 feet from their door. Like, okay, they're going back to their status quo. And it is a return to the status quo for everyone with each episode of that. Yeah. And that's kind of the case with the movies from the 90s as well. Yeah. It's Um, true. The stuff with Fester in both movies, like the plot revolves around Fester and the weird hijinks around him wrap up in a neat bow and the family goes back to normal, isolated as ever. It's not until the 2019 one that you actually get a progression to a different point at the end of the show. Although, you know, I think there is actually a hint of a little bit more openness at the end of Adam's family values because of Wednesday's connection with the other kid at camp who is also isolated and, and sort of socially outcast. She yes. makes a romantic connection with him and she jokes about killing him or something, but like in much the same way that she does with Pugsley and that's somebody she does have affection for. So it's like one of those things where she has learned that there are rare individuals in the dominant culture who are also sort of on the sidelines and might be interesting to her. No, I don't think that holds up because in the 2019 one, it's about a coming together and a compromise. Mm -hmm. In Adam's Family Values, it's about Wednesday finding another outcast from mainstream society who can't stand mainstream society. He doesn't like his parents. He doesn't like any of the media. He doesn't like being at camp. And... There's not a compromise. You don't see that, you know, they've bought a place together in the downtown <laughs> suburb that they've made kind of weird. He is attending an Adams family function and has been made over to look more like Gomez. Yeah, that's fair. It is more of like him finding a home outside of mainstream culture with the Adams culture, recognizing that there is an alternative to the dominant culture. I think that talking about Wednesday a little bit more is interesting. I think that she is 
Not in the 1960s show where she's much more of a prop who occasionally gets some fun lines. But in the movies, she often ends up being our point of view for the family. She certainly seems to be the most observant character in the like later movies. She's the one who is perceptive enough to see what's really going on and isn't absorbed in other pursuits and things like that the way that her parents often are and Fester often is. Yeah, she, I think she's a lot more grounded and has much more understanding of how the outside world works. While Morticia and Gomez seem befuddled by things and to not really understand what's going on, I think that she like comprehends a lot more. Like I, I wonder what Gomez and Morticia would have thought of being at the camp themselves if they were children. I get the impression they would have gone, well, this is strange and sort of gone along with things. Wednesday's rebellious streak and sort of being her own person in her own way is to go, no, I'm not doing that. Or I'll trick you into thinking I'll do that so I can get you right where I want you. Right. Particularly with the Adam's family values one. And she's very manipulative as well. Yes, she is. And I think that goes along with her being observant. Like she pays very close attention and she's very good at putting all the pieces together and seeing the things that people are trying to obscure. And that's one of the things that I think makes her so compelling is that she's so perceptive. And in the 2019 one, that's particularly true. Like I think she's really the main character of that movie. She's the person whose actions drive the plot. Yeah. And she's the person who sees through what's going on in the town and sees through the home improvement woman whose name escapes me and at the end like has that insightful moment where she's able to be like this person does this stuff and this person does this stuff now she's insightful because she's seen it happen on cameras but it's how she's being presented well and it's also insightful the way she uses that information to point out hey none of us are as quote-unquote normal as we pretend to be everyone has their thing that makes them weird and off and that should be a thing that is okay that should be a thing that other people can get over rather than focusing so much on conformity and condemning anyone who breaks a mold i think an interesting foil for that character though is fester Mm. he's always weirdly peripheral even though he drives the plot for the two films from the 90s he's not part of the main group in the in the 1991 one and then in family values his romance is the important thing but it's driven by Morticia and Gomez bringing someone into the house who then takes command of the romance and removes him from that family unit. He ends up always being kind of on the side. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's partly like consistent with him having sort of less connections overall. Like he's sort of peripheral even within the Adams family in a similar way to like them being sort of on the edge of society. They don't necessarily represent him as such, but he is kind of the weird one of the Adams family. Yeah. But he ends up being the butt of a lot of jokes. Yeah. Um, In a pretty unkind way. Like a lot of the time, like the jokes are centered on the fact that he's ugly or like portrayed as ugly. And that's just played for laughs a lot. Yeah. And it's weird because a lot of the time it's done within a framing of Morticia and Gomez talking about how he's not ugly. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a real problem in the 60s series because they use canned laughter so much yeah you get a lot more of the idea of what i would say the creators but it's probably the producers or the final editors that decide where that goes and they put it on so much stuff that i think in the later movies the same stuff is presented and i don't see it as a joke Mm -hmm. but it's kind of like watching something and 
having someone sit next to you and go, isn't that funny at stuff that is not? Stuff that's just making fun of someone in a kind of cruel way. Yeah. I mean, as long as I'm talking about the problems with the canned laughter, we I think we mentioned in passing that that show reuses a lot of jokes at times. I think halfway through season two, they're still adding canned laughter every time Thing appears. And Thing appears a good number of times each episode. But it's played as if it's a hilarious joke every time a hand comes out of a box. Yeah, and again, I think that that's not necessarily like an Adams Family thing so much as it is a sitcoms of that period of time thing of like reusing the same jokes, adding canned laughter a lot, using B-roll excessively, oh you know, gosh. seeing like exactly the same series of shots to convey the same joke frequently. I think is not just the Adams family. <laughs> I don't think that we should necessarily put that all on there. I mean, it does stand out and it does make the series overall like, I don't know. I think it does dilute the humor. Yeah. A lot. I think that through my eyes, there are certainly scenes in that series that I would just go, I mean, yeah, that's that's how that person is or whatever. That's part of my suspension of disbelief of this world. But mm-hmm. the canned laughter is a way of go- someone nudging me and going, that's strange, isn't it? And I go, yeah, that's fine, though. Yeah. I think also part of that is reflective of the intended way of consuming the media. Like, I don't know that it's necessarily a series that, where the idea is to watch it serially in a short span of time. I think it's structured with the canned laughter and with the repeated jokes more because then like whatever random episode you happen to see interspersed with other stuff you're going to be able to appreciate the main jokes of the series you're supposed to be watching it once a week at five o'clock on friday not binging six episodes in one day and not moving from the couch which we didn't do yeah and so the familiarity in the repetition is in some ways like a part of that structure yeah i know it's it's very strange for me because part of me enjoys it, but I can't just enjoy it as a show. It's one of those ones that I sort of have to watch vaguely as a historical document at this point. Yeah, but I, I do suspect that it is a lot more enjoyable as a thing you watch sporadically. Like it doesn't work well in the way that we consume media now, where we tend to consume large chunks of it serially in a short span of time, like the binge watching culture that we have right now. It's the same reason we get annoyed with shows from the early 2000s where every episode on Netflix has got a 30 second recap at the start. It's like, I know what happened in the last four episodes because I just watched them. I haven't moved since I started watching this show. And at this point, your recap is basically just spoiling what's going to happen in the episode. Now I know exactly what we're going to be talking about. Yep. Back to Festa. Yes. This is the episode of Derails. His romances are a problem in everything that we saw that had a romance in it. Yeah, agreed. Which was the sitcom. There was an episode where he's trying to get a mail-order bride and mistakes a door-to-door cosmetic saleswoman for his mail-order bride. And that scene is played out for 15 minutes. I don't know how long it is, but it's too long. (laughs) Yeah, and then the 93 movie, Adam's Family Values, where, again, it's that... This woman is there under false pretenses to marry him, steal his money, and kill him. He's also just very... Like, he's creepy about his affection for her. Yeah. It's entirely physical. Oh, wait, and the 2019 movie. Well, we, uh, there's another problem with the 1993 one, mm-hmm. which is the romance that comes in at the end right, after yeah. Debbie mm-hmm. Jelinski is being killed. Yeah. Is a 
effectively a female fester. Yeah. And it sort of has this weird message of the only person that could be happy with fester is someone who looked like him. And we're watching a media that is trying to tell us that he's ugly. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you know, he can't have this beautiful woman, but he can have this fester type woman. Mm-hmm. What's the woman's name in that? At the end? Yeah. Dementia. Yes, you're right. I forgot. Oh, this is dreadful. Has your memory been destroyed? Okay, so the last major point for this is to talk about the storytelling, which we sat down to try and plan out what we were going to say about the storytelling and sort of crystallized the problem with doing that, which is that this isn't a show or a movie or a comic that's about stories. The story in each episode of the sitcom is very bare bones and then it's just some jokes around that and some like farcical humor. And they're usually variations on the theme. Adam's family encounters person from dominant culture, hijinks ensue. Uh, there's a lot of episodes that are called things like the Adam's family meet the psychiatrist and things like this. Or Morticia meets the mailman. I don't think that one's an episode, but it's that <laughs> sort of thing. The comics aren't about stories. They're single panel things. Not much more than that. They're, they're snapshots. About- Right, they're about an idea. And that's it, is that the Adams Family is not about a story, it's about an idea, an aesthetic, and then the humour and messages that can be derived from that. So when you start looking at the 1991 movie, and like me, you get to the end of it and you go, okay, but this entire plot hinges on the fact that the person who is impersonating Festa was actually Festa with amnesia all along, which is a ridiculous coincidence and also was very obvious. There's not really much plot to the movie aside from man wants to steal the Adams family gold and here is Fester who has been missing for 25 years but is back now. That's the plot and it doesn't hold together if you pick it apart. But again, it doesn't matter because it does what it set out to do, which is give you a snapshot of this weird family. Right, we get to see Gomez blow up his trains and that's what we wanted. At the end, they kill off two of the villains. And I think it's mentioned that it doesn't matter whether they're dead or not. Yeah, and that is something that crops up in the Addams Family stuff, I think in the 60s show as well, and the 93 movie, and the 2019... I don't know if it happens. No one dies in the 2019 one. No, the 2019 one is... A little sanitized. Only a little. Only a little. Like, it it is is still dark. There's still guillotines, and there's still, like, shooting Festa with crossbows, and there's still... Using your parents' ashes as eyeshadow. Yeah. Um, but in the 60s one and in the 90s movies, people 100% are killed and the Adamses recount past events of killing people or maiming them in some way, like horrific crimes. Like Raul Julia, at some point, someone I think calls him a lady killer or something and he says, acquitted. Like, you know, he's, he's not disputing the having killed women in the past, not even accusation, just joke. He's uh, just pointing out the legal technicality that you can't levy that accusation. I was acquitted, you know. So it's it's fascinating the way that they do that. Like it is very dark in that way, but there's a clear through line of the Adamses have killed people and they get away with it. Like that just happens. Yep. I don't think we see them kill anyone in the TV series. I don't think they would have got away with that in the sixties. They imply that people have died in the past. Yeah, they imply that people have died. They imply that they have killed people or that they are friends with horrible dictators and things like that. You know, people who commit atrocities are like referenced as friends, pen pals, old acquaintances of the Adamses. 
So, you know, it gets pretty dark in those ways. But anyway, like, that's not an isolated thing at the end of that movie, that the villains are maybe or maybe not dead. Throughout other stuff, we get the very clear impression that the Adamses don't care. They've killed people in the past or that people have died in connection to their activities. I mean, the the punchline to the second movie in the 90s is that a baby kills someone. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, the, the, the person is trying to kill the Adams family probably wouldn't have been successful. Toons, after all. But, like, that's what it is. And I mean, with the second film, there's, again, like, there's not a plot. There's a setup for them to put skits and sketches around. It looks like there might be one. Like, they have Debbie Jelinski turn up to be the babysitter and Fester's interested. And it turns out that she's a serial killer. And that could have been spread out as tension with a is she or isn't she for a whole movie to make an interesting and intriguing plot. But instead they have like a solid 90 section newscast exposition explaining that this person who is watching the newscast by herself and being like, yeah, that's me, is in fact this Black Widow serial killer. And then from there they just move on to the skits. Again, I don't think this is bad. It's just that there's not story to pick apart in the plot narrative. The story is the Adams family themselves rather than the narrative they've been put into. Yeah, it's a device for showing you who the Adams family are. Which is true until you get to 2019. Yeah, then there is an actual plot, as you said. Which might be why I like it. Like, I think at the risk of getting hate mail from at least one of my friends for saying this, I think the 2019 one might be my favorite iteration of the Adams family. It's sort of wars for it with the first 90s movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have a plot. It has a message. It's a little bit more complex in how it put those, puts those things together. It is less dark. Like, they could have had Gomez stab several people at the start of the movie, but instead he cuts their belts so their pants fall down in true comedic style. But I think that that's partially necessary for the message of unity at the end. Mm-hmm. It's easier for the Adams family to come together with the external world in some way if they haven't murdered some of them at the start of it. Yeah. And they do come together. They come together, they rebuild the house, they do something a little bit different, and then the house decides it wants to be the way it was, thank you very much. But the one thing that I find really depressing about this movie that does manage to bring a story to tell both the story of the Adams family and a story within that world is that at the end of it, you still get a stupid Festa romance. Yeah. And it's so tacked on. I think my problem with it is not so much that it's there, is so much as how advanced it clearly is at that point. Like, it clearly hasn't been a whole lot of time. They just jump right ahead to not long after, and suddenly Fester and, like, the main antagonist person are together and happy. And I'm not saying that that's a problem and a thing that could never happen, because she does have qualities that he's interested in, and if she gave them a chance like maybe she would like him i don't know but it's that it happens so quickly and is just so overdone you know it just feels way too fast and way too fake it's also as part of a business venture yeah and it's this isn't a bad thing but like the things they like about each other are the things the other person hates about themselves what do you mean well he's like oh i love that you're like this and she looks a little bit put out because she's like that's not a compliment Well, I mean, it's that what they like about each other are each other's worst qualities, like from a traditional perspective of what makes someone a good person or an attractive person. Like he likes that she's basically that she's a ruthless person with like no respect for anyone else's privacy. Like those are things he likes about her. Yeah. Whereas if you say someone say to someone you're ruthless and have no respect for anyone's privacy, 
they're probably going to be insulted by that, even if, and probably especially if it's true. Yeah, I know it. You're right. It does feel tacked on. Yeah. Um, and so forced that it feels like some studio exec that put too much money into the film was like, "Wouldn't it be a great idea if this happened at the end of the film?" And they were like, oh, "Okay, no, maybe." May. Yeah. Well, How like, much? The thing I take issue with most is that it's such a 180 for the villain character who yeah. hates the Adams family and is so disgusted by them that it doesn't feel genuine at all for her to have turned around so thoroughly as to be like happily enamored with Fester. Like yeah. I could have seen maybe him asking her out or her agreeing to work with him on the business venture because yeah. that's how that sort of wraps up right before that happens. He's like, you've got 50 houses that you have to sell on a tight deadline. I've got 50 families, you know, extended family who want to live closer to us. We can work something out. And over maybe that process leading to her more slowly realizing that the Adams family are people. They're weird people, but they're still people and people with which she has a lot in common and people who admire her for the qualities that a lot of people judge her for. And like that I could see. But the way that they do it is just too fast. And as you say, it's just way too forced. Without seeing those mid-steps, there's kind of the possibility that it's not an entirely willing relationship or it's a relationship she's in because there's nothing else out there for her. Yeah. Because everyone is judging her so much. So yeah, that I didn't like, but everything else I did. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I did, I'm just fascinated by the Adams Family for the fact that they can be so devoid of narrative and still be such an interesting story in themselves. Yeah. So I think that's most of the main things that we wanted to talk about. But I think the big question is, what is it about the Adams Family that keeps people coming back to it and keeps people renewing it into a new form or an old form, as the case may be? I think that it's because they're like a compelling exercise in sort of examining the culture of the time and like dominant culture, but also... Their refreshing take on like the family dynamic that's presented in a way that's very different from a lot of the other popular depictions of families. Like I said before, like I really appreciate that nobody in the family is defined only by like one thing about themselves or one relationship that they have. And I think that that's something that happens a lot in media, especially things like sitcoms, which is the style that the Adams family is most often sort of taking its structure from so it becomes really compelling both as a way to sort of provide an alternative to like this mainstream dominant mentality and like sort of critique it in a lot of ways so i think a lot of people who feel like they're on the margins of dominant culture kind of are drawn in by that but also i think people who don't appreciate the way that our society kind of tries to put us in boxes might also appreciate the adams family for similar reasons does that make sense yeah, I think that does make a lot of sense. I wonder for how long it will continue to be something that can be revisited this way while keeping true to being a counterculture because it was born out of being a counterculture to conservative viewpoints. As we get more progressive as a society, making it a direct counter on that basic conceit might be more difficult. And I think that's what the 2019 movie is trying to do by having more of a message in there. Mm -hmm. I think it's easier to see yourself in the Adams Family of the 2019 movie mm -hmm. and not have the problem where you're associating yourself with murderers <laughs> as much. Because there's an extent to which people who are like, oh, I'm just like the Adams Family is like, well, 
well, how much like the Adams family? Like, should I call the police? Or <laughs> or is it just that you like the aesthetic of chaos and morbidity, which are different things? Right. Or that you're drawn into the idea of just being passionate about life in everything, which is, I think, something that I really love about the Adams family. Like, I think that's a really important thing that draws people in is just their joie de vivre, like how engrossed in whatever they're doing they are. And I think that's a really important commentary against, again, dominant mainstream culture, which is trying to tell us to put so much of our energy and our value in consuming and being workers and hitting particular milestones or achievements for the sake of doing those things rather than enjoying the moment and doing things for the joy of doing them and for the experience of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think you're right. I think the passion that they show is a really important part of that. Yeah. Yeah. But I can see what you're saying about how it might be a little trickier to use the Adams family in the way that it has been used as a commentary because a lot of the time, especially those ideas of like adhering to really traditional things and preserving traditions. And again, you do see that kind of growth in the 2019 one of breaking away from some of these traditions and updating them to keep moving forward and be able to keep up with the times to an extent. Whereas in previous things, we've been seeing it as like a pushback to progressive ideas. I don't think that the people who are drawn to the Adams Family like in the last 90 years are going to be the same people who are going to want to affiliate themselves and like consume something that is pushing back against the progressive trends going on right now of like right. trying to create a more inclusive society and trying to embrace a more global perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a good answer to the big question. But I think the bigger question is, what about the 90s meant that every Adams Family had to end with a rap version of the Adams Family song? I think that's part of them trying to keep up with the times, part of adapting it to future mediums. Like, it's not just the Adams Family movies that did that, like a lot of 90s stuff. Shoehorned in awkward themed raps. And so it's part of, I think, bringing the Adams Family into the 90s that they did that. See, the problem I have with that is that I, I'm trying to think of like 90s or 2000s movies that end with like shoehorned raps. And only two are coming to my mind. And I know that's because I'm a poor sheltered individual. And they're Men in Black and Wild Wild West. And both of those are movies with Will Smith in, which is why he did raps at the end of them. Which raises the question of how great would it have been if the Addams Family rap had been performed by Raul Julia? Oh my god, that would have been hilarious. Um, I also appreciate the nod to that, that they embed in the 2019 one, where they have Snoop Dogg playing Cousin It. Mm. And... He's got his theme music as he's getting up to the house. And then at the end, Snoop Dogg has done a 2019 Adam's Family rap, you know, to bring it into the, the 20-teens, I guess. And I don't like, actually think that's necessarily like to bring it a, a pace with the time so much as it is one of those instances of fidelity to the past iterations we were talking about, where like they're being so faithful, you know, in homage to all of the past Adam's Family projects that they even did an Adams Family rap at the end. Yeah, well, I mean, it comes in right after the recreation of the introduction scene from the yeah. 1960s show with the animation style of the original comics. Mm -hmm. So it's a perfect collection at the end of there. Yeah. 
Like the end credits are really just the, in case you didn't realize from the earlier parts of this film and like the actual movie, we, no, 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 we really did our homework and we really love this stuff. Like it's the extra credit. I'm uh, so mad that people didn't like this movie. Yeah, like, I think it gets it's a shame. So panned online. Yeah, and I just like if you were like, do you want to go and watch something Adam's Family right now? That's the one I'd go and watch again right now. They so. are doing a new one. There's going to be a Adam's Family, like a second animated one in 2021, I think. Good. So we'll see. I mean, it might suffer from sequelitis, but we'll see what happens. But yeah, no, I don't. I don't agree with the panning of it either. I think. It's fair to say that it is a little sanitized, as we talked about. Like, you know, people don't actually straight up die in it. But I think that it does capture the aesthetic and the idea of the family. And I think updates it in a way that makes sense for now. And the casting is spectacular. Oh, yeah. Casting is really, really good. Charlize Theron as Morticia was great. I'm trying to remember who did Gomez. Oh, it's um, Oscar Isaac. Yeah. I don't know. It's the guy from Rogue One. Yeah, you keep telling me that, and I keep not remembering which guy you mean. But anyway, it's fine. It's okay. We'll do a Google search after this. Do you have fun facts? Yes. So do I. Are they the same fun facts? One of them certainly isn't, but one of them might be. Go on. You go first. One is that Morticia's mother, Hester Frump, in the 1960s television show, is played by Margaret Hamilton, which is the same actress who played the Wicked Witch of the West in Wizard of Oz. Huh. I have still not seen A Wizard of Oz. Which still surprises me, even though I did know that already. We'll have to get around to that one at some point. Another is that in in that same series, in the 1960s series, it's revealed that Uncle Fester is actually Morticia's mother's brother. So it's Hester and Fester. And so Uncle Fester is Morticia's uncle, not the kid's uncle. But in the 1991 and 1993 movies with Raul Julia and Angelica Houston, Fester is Gomez's older brother, and so he's the kid's uncle. The last fun fact that I have is that I dressed up as Morticia for Halloween when I was a child. My mom made the costume for me. I'm sure it was really adorable. I definitely remember, like, choosing that costume myself to do. So that was a thing. And now you guys know that. And we're going to share a picture of that in the notes. I don't <laughs> have a picture of it. I My mom might. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. I think she took pictures of all of our Halloween costumes. But yeah, like I remember, I think I was like nine or 10, I think, because I think it was shortly after we moved to the East Coast. But yeah, like I had like a black sort of tube shaped dress with like fluffy like tool stuff on the bottom to be like the squiggly bits. But it was a little bit higher, like not on the floor. I remember wanting them to be on the floor, but my mom didn't do that because, you know, I was a child and I would have tripped and killed myself. So... Because I'm not an Adams and I don't operate according to tune rules. Although if you watch Carolyn Jones, who played Morticia Adams in the 60s show, try and walk in that dress, it, it's not an easy thing to walk in. Well, she that's has why a they're called hobble dresses. That's the type of dress she's wearing. It's huh. called a hobble dress for a reason. It does restrict the range of movement of your legs. The fun fact I have is about John Astin, who played Gomez in the 60s show which is that he's the adoptive father of Sean Astin, who you might know from things like Samwise in Lord of the Rings or that guy in season two of Stranger Things, whose name has escaped me, I apologize. Sean Astin has a very strange family history, but he was adopted and raised by John Astin when uh, he and his mother married. Hmm. So I think that makes Sean Astin an honorary Adams. Sure. 
He would have made a good Pugsley. I'm not sure that's a compliment. I think it is. Okay, I think that that sort of wraps up the episode for this week. You can find us on all of our social media. Links are in the show notes below. You can also find us on YouTube where we are putting out a this podcast episode. Every Wednesday we'll go up there as a video version, by which I mean it will have a slideshow in the background. If we don't video this, that would be a pain in the ass. And on alternate Wednesdays we are releasing a video where you can see us in actual person and we talk about smaller topics. They tend to be like 10 to 30 minute videos. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can support us to get access to our live recordings, bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes content, all that good stuff. If you would like merch, there's also a link for that down in the notes below. Roughly at this point, I imagine, you're hearing the sound of our delightful theme music, which is provided to us from Mike Bassington. Uh, You can find links to his profiles and more of his work in those notes below. Uh, Yeah. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time. And I think we might add a sound effect in because we don't do that normally and I know it's weird. So cue sound effect. Why do you want to make more work for me? I've got a sound effect already. Got is the it, page turn is it that I use in the other one. The sound effect from the show. <laughs> well, we have you making that noise now. So we can just play it <laughs> in there and then we'll play it backwards when you go back.